Hello, thank you for tuning in today. We are going to be diving into the world of hormones and your health. I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Eve Bloomgarden, a board-certified endocrinologist. She brings expertise in thyroid health, pituitary disorders, and metabolic bone disease to the table. Dr. Bloomgarden has been working for nearly a decade at Northwestern University as a physician and educator, and she'll soon be transitioning to North Shore University Health System, where she'll be directing the thyroid group. Our chat today covers a lot of ground, from what hormones are, to the definition of hormone health, to how our hormones change from minute to minute and throughout our lives. We also really get into what not to believe and how not to spend your money. There is an incredible amount of misinformation out there about balancing your hormones with unregulated tests and supplements. Dr. Bloomgarden often sees the fallout of wellness scams and she dishes practical advice on investing wisely in your health. Like me, she is also a passionate science communicator, which is how we know each other. Dr. Bloomgarden plays a leadership role in two science outreach nonprofits. One is called Impact, a volunteer coalition of healthcare professionals centered in Chicago. The other is the Women in Medicine Summit, an organization dedicated to advancing gender equity in medicine. If you want more from Dr. Bloomgarden, check her out on Twitter at EveBMD and take a look at Impact and Women in Medicine Summit. Without further ado, let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Bloomgarden. I'm really excited for this conversation. Thank you for having me, and I am very excited to be here. I know we have a lot in common, especially when it comes to busting misinformation, so we'll be doing a lot of that today. Can't wait. So why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about what you do as a clinician? Sure. So I am a clinical endocrinologist, and I primarily focus on patients with thyroid disorders, so both benign thyroid hormone dysfunction, thyroid nodules, and thyroid cancer. But I also see general endocrinology cases and certainly you know everything in between, so a pretty wide variety and wide group of ages. Adults only. I was excited to hear in some of our pre-conversations that osteoporosis is something you encounter often, and that's of great interest to me. Absolutely. It turns out it's hormonally mediated. Yeah, it's not something that comes to mind for a lot of people when it comes to bone health. So let's just jump in and setting sort of the basic foundation for this conversation with an understanding of what even is a hormone and how many are they and how are they categorized? Yeah, so it actually, it turns out this is not as easy of a question to answer as I thought it would be because the definition is always changing and we used to think of it as just a substance that gets secreted by a gland, and this is mostly still true, that signals a messaging cascade in the body and provides instructions or directions and also is responsive to feedback. So that is mostly true, although there's lots of other signals and chemicals in the body that are not hormones. So what really distinguishes the endocrine system and hormones as we tend to describe them is that they're secreted by glands. And so glands are, I'll run through the examples, but the hypothalamus, the pituitary, the thyroid glands, the pancreas, the adrenal glands, and the ovaries or the testes, all of these are considered endocrine glands. Hopefully didn't miss too many. The parathyroids I missed there and potentially the pineal gland as well. Okay. So are we talking dozens, hundreds? Oh, of hormones. Oh boy. I don't know the answer to that. Not hundreds, dozens. 
when I walk through, I think about the pituitary as our master hormone regulator. And so there are axes and, you know, you kind of walk down from there. So certainly there's more than your household names, which are thyroid, you know, mostly and steroids. But I think the number is not a static thing. And are there some sort of high level categories of hormones based on mechanism action? Or are they typically categorized by where they come from? Or is it a bit of both? It's a bit of both. I tend to characterize them by where they come from because what's important is not what they do in people who have functional endocrine systems, but what happens when they go awry. So what happens when you have too little of a hormone or too much of a hormone? And then what happens when the signaling kind of gets crossed? Because there are things that can kind of cross react in other pathways. So really we think about like whether you're deficient or have an excess of a certain hormone. And that's how we define pathology. Mm -hmm. And so the flip side of pathology is hormone health. Does that term even mean anything to you? Because you hear that a lot. And so what does hormone health mean to you? So hormone health is a category that's a bit triggering in terms of being a popular statement that doesn't actually have a lot of meaning. And so it kind of goes into the category of functional and integrative and holistic and hormone health. I mean, it basically, it's a wellness term. And I don't think about it as much as from a medicine standpoint, as much as a wellness, kind of a rebranding of normal physiology, you know, and I think it is misleading because people ask for a hormone check and that's not really a thing. What's a thing is you take the symptoms, you take the current clinical scenario and you evaluate, you know, pretest probability of having an abnormal hormonal problem, and then you can evaluate it using the right tests. But it is definitely a stepwise process that if you cast a wide net and you check every blood test that is available or salivary test or urine test, you're going to find things that flag as abnormal because no test is perfect, but you have to know the clinical scenario and you have to have a reason to send the test. So hormone health to me is somebody who is potentially just not feeling quite right or who's just wanting to maintain wellness and is looking for a check of that, but it is not really a term that has a lot of value or has a lot of meaning. So one of the things that I really took away from graduate school and continues to sort of shape how I think about any topic is that we need to understand normal before we can understand disease. And so I wanted to hear from you, how variable is normal and how do our normal hormones change over time? So actually, this is one of my favorite questions and I hasn't been asked quite like this before. And I think it's a really important thing. So the body does weird things all the time. And hormones are regulated sometimes on a minute-to-minute basis. They're always changing. So in endocrinology, we have screening tests, and then we have dynamic tests where we kind of provoke an abnormal situation to see how hormones respond. Because, you know, if you're going to measure a random level in the middle of the day of a cortisol or testosterone or growth hormone, it could be different Monday versus Tuesday versus Wednesday, and it would be meaningless. So, you know, I think you have to understand the conditions with which you're sending the test and also why you're doing it and the parameters of the testing. And so there's a lot of caveats and nuances to all of these tests. You know, so one of the things that I love to do with my patients is we take sometimes, you know, if somebody has offered to do kind of a hormone panel or a salivary testing and, you know, they bring in these pages and pages of results, like we therapeutically rip them up together because they're not useful, even if they're wildly abnormal, if we don't have a validation of the study if we don't have the right clinical question or the right kind of environment to do the test. So I think the reason for hormone health or why this becomes a thing is because people are looking for answers to what ails them, right? And, you know, people don't feel well all the time. And endocrine disorders 
can have almost any clinical presentation. So we can't go only by symptoms for any of them. You know, there are things that are highly suggestive, but a lot of things are overlapping. And so the main approach I usually will take is to ask a clinical question and then to answer it with a test if I feel like it's the right test to do in the right setting. So when I asked the question about changing with time, I think, yeah, that harkens me also back to grad school because we were doing experiments on PBMCs and just blood cell distributions and diurnal variation. So people in the lab were just drying themselves every several hours to see how things change. And that really stuck in my mind that, you know, the same person can get very different answers if you test them twice. So a hundred percent, our normal values are time of day dependent. So if we're looking to see if you have hypogonadism, which is low testosterone, it's an 8am value. And if you check the testosterone level at two in the afternoon, it's not going to be helpful. If you're looking for Cushing's disease, which is a disorder of glucocorticoid excess, you're going to be looking at a late night salivary cortisol as the best test. And, you know, checking it in the middle of the day or in the morning is not helpful. And so there's so much nuance. Now, there are some levels that are stable, right? So a thyroid hormone level, a TSH, which is actually a pituitary hormone, is how we diagnose thyroid dysfunction. And that's relatively stable throughout the day, throughout the week. And it's not really under the same kind of stressful condition. You can check at any time. It doesn't matter. In one person, it's not going to vary so much with some caveats, but other hormones are much more finicky. And then you do have aging differences. So again, you know, hormones when you're pre-pubertal or when you're going through puberty or when you hit menopause, the levels are very, very different. So you have to know the age of the patient and also, if it's appropriate, you know, if somebody looks much younger than stated age, they're potentially going to have certain hormonal things that are wrong. In children, there's pediatric endocrinology is very different than what I do, you know, because it's mostly developmental growth disorders, but there's certainly overlap. So that you have to know what is normal. And then I think normal is, it's really about what's not normal and not defining normal, but defining what's abnormal. Mm-hmm. Are there any hormones that are canonical age related aside from the sex hormones? estrogen plummeting after menopause and testosterone kind of tapering? You got it exactly right. I mean, I think in my mind, puberty and menopause are the most dramatic, right? Because you have a hormone and then you don't, although it's not, unless it's a surgical menopause, it's not an overnight kind of thing, but it is an adaptation that happens somewhat abruptly compared to what we otherwise do. There are more subtle changes. So cortisol levels, the normal range that doesn't really change with aging, but your thyroid hormone levels, There are different kind of ranges of normal with aging, such that a normal value for a 35-year-old may not be exactly the same as for a 90-year-old, but there's ethnicity and race dependence there and country of origin dependence. And there's also a very broad range of normal for the thyroid. This just triggered a random question for you is that people talk about your metabolism slowing with age. Does the thyroid hormone levels part of that? And, And this whole concept of your metabolism, your basal rate is even a confusing one and not that well understood, I don't think. No, it's not well understood. And in fact, there was a recent paper, oh my gosh, I forget what month it came out, that basically threw the whole basal metabolic rate situation on its head and looked at, you know, actually menopause does not really change your basal metabolic rate. And it was a really awesome paper that I think threw everyone for a loop, but makes sense, which is metabolism slows, but it's the first year of life is the most accelerated. And then it's really just like a gradual aging process. I think they broke it into four categories. The short answer is yes, thyroid is probably a small piece of the puzzle with aging, but it's all very complicated and multifactorial. So the answer is never going to be a one hormone as the answer or the solution. Yeah. 
Yeah. I feel like we could have a whole thyroid and metabolism conversation, but I want to maybe just zoom out a level and talk about misconceptions and myths. You've alluded to some of this already, but what are some of the most common ways that you know people are misinformed about hormone health and maybe mistreating themselves or misdiagnosing themselves? Yeah. So that's a I lot. Mean, <laughs> <I know. laughs> a deep breath. So I mean, I think what happens is that there is a growing kind of anti-science, mistrust of medicine, do your own research kind of phenomenon that is not new, has certainly been accelerated during the COVID-19 pandemic, as we've seen with vaccines and with basically everything having to do with how to stay safe from the virus. And I think endocrinology is very much vulnerable to those same forces that we're now all too familiar with. And I think it is dangerous because people do have this kind of unlimited access to information with the internet. And because hormones are an easy kind of thing to blame or to question, and because symptoms of hormone dysfunction are so ubiquitous, you can really see how somebody gets really convinced that they have a hormone problem or that their hormones are not working correctly. And then it's just about kind of finding information to support your own theory, right? Our brains love to tell a story that all fits together as with one answer. And it's very hard to disconnect somebody from what they've kind of bought into, in particular when there is a lot of information online that looks really legitimate. It's very hard to tell there are books about hormones, there are websites, there are marketing campaigns. Again, it goes into the branding, but people are always looking for answers. And that's, of course, that's human nature. But the answers that are easiest to find are often not the answers that are going to lead someone to feel better or to treat an underlying kind of problem, a medical problem. And so what you wind up with is that, you know, you get these kind of commitments to fallacy, I would say. And then you get this kind of on top of that is this idea that natural is always better. You know, so the appeal to nature fallacy, which I think endocrine is uniquely vulnerable to as well. And so there's nothing better about something that's natural versus something that's synthetic. And especially when we have no idea if it works or if it's safe, but people are kind of focused on this because of the wellness industry, to be perfectly honest. And I think it would be awesome if we could give you a hormone and you would feel better, right? That is kind of where I start from is I would love to make somebody feel better, but I'm not going to do it if I'm introducing risk and harm without benefit. And we know if you give hormones to somebody without a hormone problem, they're not going to feel better, but you are introducing more risk. So that's a really complicated answer because there's so many different pieces to this. But I typically will say, I mean, almost every patient I see, I'll say like, if you don't know what it is, don't swallow it. If somebody is selling you something and benefiting from it and offering medical advice in the same kind of visit, that's a red flag. You know, if it seems too good to be true, that's a red flag. You know, I think people have to be inoculated against the misinformation the same way we talk about with COVID. And that's a much larger undertaking. The other thing I think is that there are a lot of things at play. We have a huge workforce shortage in endocrinology and in medicine in general. And so that creates a void where people are filling that void with potentially different intentions. Yeah, absolutely. I feel very privileged to have access to your time to have this conversation because normally you'd have to have, especially here in Canada, you'd have to go through your GP first to give you green light and you know, you'd probably have a year wait or whatever it is, unless you have some really acute issue, you probably wouldn't even get a referral and then you'd have to wait same forever. Here. And- it's the same here. Mm-hmm. Nine to 12 month wait. 
So I'm a thyroid subspecialist in my free time. And so that's like a little bit more nuance. We do like require referrals to make sure it's the right thing. But all of the endocrinologists are just so backed up. So we treat patients with diabetes patients with osteoporosis, patients with thyroid dysfunction, and then, of course, all of the less common disorders. So I treat a lot of patients with pituitary disease, a lot of adrenal dysfunction. And, you know, I think there's too many people who fall into those categories and there's not enough endocrinologists. So it's frustrating for patients. Yeah. Can you give some specific examples of popular non-endocrinologist approved substances that people are taking? Sure. I mean, I think the most obvious one is performance enhancing supplements and, you know, nutraceuticals for sports or athletes. I think those all fall under the endocrine category, quote unquote, bioidentical hormones for the menopausal transition. And I say bioidentical with quotes because it's really biosimilar. Bioidentical just means it's identical to it, you know, so I think that's kind of a misnomer, but desiccated thyroid hormone, adrenal support supplements, mega doses of things like iodine or selenium. Wow. I don't know. The list goes on and on. I mean, I spend a lot of time talking about supplements with people and trying to get people to stop taking them. You know, I think it's not only that who knows if they're safe or effective, but it's also who's benefiting from you buying this. And it's an economic burden. There are some supplements that interfere with our ability to measure hormones as well, like biotin, for example, a lot of our assays are biotinylated. So if you're taking biotin for hair and nail health, we actually can't evaluate a lot of your labs. And that's something that people don't know. And so there's just a lot of chaos between the vitamin supplement, nutraceutical, holistic industry and endocrinology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to spend a little bit more time on two things that you raised because they're just such important tools, no matter what subject you're talking about. And one is the fact that supplements are not regulated. So the difference of that versus, you know, FDA or Health Canada regulated. And the second is the appeal to nature just to kind of add a bit of color to that. Yeah. So starting with the lack of regulation, I think when something is going through FDA approval, it has to go through rigorous scientific testing, not only to prove that it works, but also to look at the safety profile and parameters and to make sure there's no long-term risks or short-term risks. And the supplement industry bypasses that entire process, meaning we don't know. There are a lot of claims that are made about supplements, you know, to support your hormone health or to support wellness, to help with basically anything that ails you, but they don't have to back that claim up with evidence. And so, I mean, the biggest flaw is obviously like maybe you're just taking a placebo, but there are risks there because what if this actually leads to cancer down the line? What if you're taking excessive doses of a supplement or, you know, an iodine, you know, you could actually throw your thyroid off by doing that. What if you're not actually getting what you think you're getting and you're missing an essential thing that you're trying to replace at times like prenatal vitamins, like that's a really big deal. Right. So, I mean, I think there's just, it somehow has skirted around the actual regulation for safety and efficacy. I had a conversation in a previous episode about bioidentical hormones and the distinction that I took away from that. Actually, the UK calls them body identical. And then they clarify the most important distinction is not necessarily the chemical structure of the hormone, but whether you're getting it compounded in a pharmacy, in which case you don't know the dose you're getting versus you're getting that same compound potentially in an FDA approved formulation where you know exactly what the dose is and it's been tested. Absolutely. So like people are so worried about the risks and side effects, but when it comes to things like bioidentical hormones, when you have something that has been evaluated for safety and efficacy and has also as part of that shown that it can be produced in large quantities and it is the same when it's produced, you know, across time, 
that's much safer because it's a known. So when you go to a compounding pharmacy or when you kind of take something that is biosimilar or has that variability because we don't really know what it is, you run the risk of running into, you know, side effects, adverse events, and potentially not treating the underlying issue. And so when you have an alternative that is safe and available and reproducible over time, it makes no sense to try and compound it and reinvent the wheel. You should go with the thing that we know is safe and it's the knowns in terms of benefit, but also the knowns in terms of what we can monitor for and what kind of risks to expect. In particular for estrogen or testosterone, I mean, there are real risks there if you're on the wrong dose. And the natural is safer and better thing comes up in a lot of contexts. And I've talked in the past about pesticides, for example, and that there's this belief that if something is an organic pesticide, we shouldn't worry about it. But if it's a synthetic pesticide, we should worry about it. When really the message I keep hammering on is it's the dose that actually matters, not really how it was made. And you must see that all the time. All the time. I mean, so I would say probably 10 times a day I hear I want to do the thing that's the most natural. And so, you know, part of me, I always just kind of smile. There's nothing wrong with compounds and chemicals. Like synthetic is not bad and natural is not good. They don't have values to them. It depends on what it is and what it does to your body and why we're using it, right? And I think there's nothing inherently good or bad. Again, it's the known versus the unknown that I think is the biggest thing. And this appeal to nature, you know, I think fallacy is just, it's so damaging and has really been like hijacked by the wellness industry. So I have people who tell me like, they just don't want to put anything toxic in their body. And I understand, but it's not toxic, right? I mean, I think even the word toxic has been misused. So, I mean, I think it's just, I tell people don't swallow things that you don't know what they are. Don't put, apply creams if you don't know what they are. You know, don't expose yourself to things unnecessarily. But if we're treating you for something, let's do it in a safe, monitored way where we understand how to look, what to look for. So do you prescribe in your toolkit of medications, are some of them going to be sort of body identical and others are going to be things that wouldn't normally be in your body that were just sort of invented through chemistry? It's a tough question. So, I mean... Yes and no, meaning like levothyroxine, which is thyroid hormone, is a synthetic substance, but is bioidentical to thyroid hormone, right? And so I think it's really, you know, estradiol is synthetic, but is bioidentical to what you make in your own body. So I usually will say, you know, the body does not care if you make or take something that is bioidentical, but, and by bioidentical, I mean, regulated and given to you by a pharmacy that's all tested. But the body doesn't care because we use actually the same kind of measurement values that, that your body would be doing anyway, meaning like the endocrine system is feedback. It's mostly negative feedback. So we kind of measure what your pituitary thinks about your body's thyroid status or your steroid status or your estrogen status. So the same systems work because they're bioidentical when it comes to like, what do your cells think? Yeah. So when you say something is bioidentical, but synthetic, you're sort of making a distinction between how it was created. Like it wasn't like you ground up a plant and then the extent to which it looks the same to your body as what their body would normally make. Correct. So bioidentical to me means kind of, it looks the same to your body. Mm-hmm. We spend a lot of time talking about what not to do and some of the you know pitfalls of the wellness industry. So let's maybe talk about the real McCoy a bit. And so how would you normally, first of all, when should somebody actually be going to see an endocrinologist or you know asking their GP sure. to refer them? So, I mean, primary care doctors are the most amazing breed of humans, right? So they basically, you know, keep a high clinical suspicion for 
pathophysiology and they also do screening tests. And, you know, when things come back as abnormal, depending on what the abnormality is, they may choose to treat it or they may choose to refer. Typically, patients don't ask to go to the endocrinologist as much as they're referred for obvious findings or high suspicion. Yeah. But what do you do if you're in that situation of, I feel like something's off, I don't feel like myself, and you know my GP doesn't want to refer me to an endocrinologist, so should I go out and seek some sort of hormone panel? I think that's probably a common situation. What do you say to someone in that? Very world? common. So it really depends on what the symptoms are, and that's like where the sending the right test at the right time. So, you know, if you look at a list of what Cushing's disease can do, right, it can cause fractures, diabetes, excessive weight gain, mood changes, but Cushing's is very rare. And so if you have all of those things, it's very unlikely that you have Cushing's. And I think, you know, that's probably the most obvious example, but there's so many along that spectrum. Thyroid disease, over the last two years, I've basically asked everyone, are you tired? Are you stressed? Are you having trouble with sleep? Are you gaining weight? All of those are just COVID, right? I mean, for a lot of people, and it's not the thyroid, but you can't go by a list of symptoms. There are things that are very, very specific, you know, that would send a red flag for like, you definitely need to get this checked out. But most things are not going to be so simple. And so, I mean, I think I encourage people to have, you know, a routine health screening with our primary care doc, because part of that is going to look for evidence of abnormalities that would then flag you to pursue an endocrine workup, right? But I think it is unlikely that if you're seeing, you know, somebody who has the credentialing and the training to evaluate you, they're not going to miss something that's going to be severe and is going to make you really sick. Like that shows up in so many ways on your routine medical screenings. For thyroid, a TSH check is part of an annual routine physical. And if that's normal, you're done. That is the whole story from do you have hypo or hyperthyroidism with a couple of very rare exceptions. And Cushing's disease is not typically, it's going to be dramatic. It's going to be in your face. If you really think you have something like this, your best bet is to see first, you know, your general practitioner or primary care doc and not to kind of go down the rabbit hole of which one of my hormones might be not working because it's very nebulous and it's very hard to figure that out without kind of understanding all of the back things. So endocrine is a cognitive specialty. So we make it look really easy, but we're constantly doing thinking and patterns and putting things together and pulling things from one thing you said and what you look like on exam and what your numbers look like. And so there's a lot of synthesis that is not obvious. If it were obvious, you know, we wouldn't have an obesity epidemic. We wouldn't have a diabetes epidemic. We would be treating everybody, you know, it would be simple. I say all of this in like, it's obviously easy to say. I have a lot of empathy for people who are struggling. And it doesn't mean that there's nothing wrong with you, but it may be that you're struggling, something's going on. You do have a lab abnormality or hormonal abnormality and treating it, you know, doesn't make you feel all the way better. And that's because it's just a piece of the puzzle in a lot of cases. People get very stressed out when they look for like, I need a good holistic endocrinologist who's going to evaluate me from head to toe. And I think that's branding. That is a misclassification of what is really going to help. So that's a great segue because I wanted to spend some time on lifestyle. So what advice do you give to your patients and to yourself in terms of what you can do preventatively and even correctively without medications? So all of this is going to be true regardless of whether or not you also have another abnormality. And I think about it as a pyramid where sleep is the foundation and then, you know, food and then exercise, you know, in a pyramid, food and exercise sometimes can change places. But really, if you're not getting a good night's sleep, if you're not sleeping eight hours, like you're probably not going to fix whatever's going on. Typically, this comes up in terms of weight management, but also kind of people, you know, if you're just not feeling 
right, if you're feeling off. Like, you know, I think a lot of times sleep is a big culprit, whether it's impaired sleep or it's too short, sleep apnea. That's a huge piece of this, which is really hard to treat, right? It's very hard to fix insomnia and to help somebody with chronic sleep deprivation. And I think that is not endocrinologic. So I always have this conversation with a lot of honesty, you know, that is going to be the first thing. So if somebody comes in and they're like, I'm very, very tired. And you find out they sleep four hours a night, you're not going to be able to find a hormone to give them that's going to make them feel better. And you have to get to the root of what's going on. So, I mean, I think that's the most important. And then in terms of, you know, if somebody says, should I exercise? The answer is always going to be yes. It is the gift that keeps on giving, right? So as you exercise, you're doing something beneficial for your body, for your brain, for your mind. It just keeps moving forward. Like the better you get at it, the more you do it, the better you do it. You know, it's just, it's one of those very unique things that it pays for itself right away. But there are lots of people who cannot do it, who have joint issues or osteoporosis or balance or, you know, COVID was a nightmare for my older patients who really just lost a lot of muscle strength. And, you know, that puts you at risk for falls. And so you can't be cavalier about like, yeah, just go do it. But I think exercise is always going to help. It's almost always going to help. Food, I think, is a much more complicated question because, you know, there's no right diet. There's no perfect way to eat. There's nothing magical about ketones. There's nothing magical about gluten-free. There is no anti-inflammatory autoimmune diet that is totally made up. So, I mean, I think none of this has any sort of scientific backing. There are things that work better for certain people and things that work better for others. There are certainly, you know, if you're going to survive on a hypocaloric diet, best to choose things that are good for you and not just eat Halloween candy, right? Like, I mean, there's some obvious things, but you know, I don't, prescribe a specific diet for metabolism, for weight. I do tell people kind of across the board, don't drink your calories, don't drink juice, don't drink regular soda. You know, if you want to stay full and you want to eat to get better, to stay well, no empty calories. You know, I tell people strategically plan your cheat dates. If you know on Saturday, you're going to go to a birthday party, you want to have a cookie, plan that in advance because willpower is gone by 5 p.m. and doesn't show up on the weekends often. And you can undo all of the benefit that you've done for the whole week, right? So there are some basic principles, but it's so complicated. Like there's no, your blood type is this and you should eat this way. And this is going to answer everything because most people, the weight slowly goes up over time. And if you're doing everything right, it just goes up a little bit or you stay the same, right? And then there comes a point when you're a certain age where like you'd want to go out of your way not to lose weight. So, you know, I think it is a constant, I kind of look at how does your body think about this BMI or this weight, right? Like if you have diabetes and hypercholesterolism and cardiac disease, then, you know, that's a much different question if your BMI is over where it should be versus like if you have none of those things and you've been stably at a BMI of 25 or 26, like that's probably fine, you know? So I think it's about knowing the individual. So that's weight. Weight is probably the most complicated piece of all of this. There's a whole subfield of endocrinology that is weight management endocrinology, which is evolving and expanding on a daily basis. That is not thyroid. That is not cortisol. That is not testosterone or estrogen. That is not calcium or parathyroid. That's not osteoporosis, right? Like the things that I mentioned, those are easier. I mean, like that's what I treat, but like they're a lot less complicated than weight. And so, I mean, I say that in a, there are so many cool things we have right now to help with weight loss and weight management, but it's much more complicated than you're never going to find an answer. That's just do one thing and you're going to be better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Well, for the sake of time, I feel like we should start to bring this to a close. And I'd like to hear some of your top tips for separating fact from fiction, both in this area and beyond, because, you know, I'm all about equipping my listeners with a better science literacy toolkit. Thanks for asking this. So it's part of my side job, which I do in my free time. I co-founded Impact, which is the Illinois Medical Professional Action Collaborative Team. And we basically are a kind of a grassroots advocacy organization for COVID-19 information. And we spend a ton of time debunking misinformation about COVID. So people are always asking me, why are you doing this? You're not an ER doc. You're not a nurse. You know, you're not on the front line. And it's like, because I'm a disinformation slayer. I'm an endocrinologist. This is what I do all day long. And as somebody who interacts with patients all day long, every day, I have a pretty decent understanding of what's going on with people and what's driving them and what's bothering them. And, you know, I just, I'm a walking empath. I mean, I usually just listen to people and I just kind of absorb and, you know, people share a lot with me, which is why I'm good at my job. Right. But I think it translates really well to life in general, which is if something seems too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. And that is true of endocrinology, true of almost anything. And I think top tips is if somebody is going against the grain, right? If you find an answer that just perfectly fits your scenario that goes in direct contrast to what your trusted doctors or nurses or what you know to be true, you have to question it. You cannot just pick that one thing because it falls in line with what you're looking for. And a lot of that, you know, it almost puts, I think, too much pressure on the individual to diagnose themselves, which I actually don't encourage, right? But I think don't spend a lot of money buying tests that are not covered by insurance and that seem really off the beaten path because they are not validated in labs that you know we use. They aren't interpretable and somebody's making a lot of money on you. I mean, it's a scam. You know, a lot of it's a scam. Now, it's funny because you hear that a lot that I don't trust the doctor because they're just trying to make money. But there's this lack of recognition that the supplement industry and all of the wellness industry is making tons of money. I don't know if you watched Ted Lasso, but there was a really good, it's like one of my favorite shows. There was a really good quote where Ted says this to the therapist. was like, well, you're just paid to talk to me, you know, and it's not wrong to get paid for your work, right? I mean, we all have to work and make a living and we are absolutely entitled to be paid for what we do. It does not mean that the conflict of interest is interfering with our patient care in any way. I mean, truly, when you look at that compared to things like supplements or holistic, you know, whatever, you know, body scans and salivary testing, like that is actually a direct conflict. There's a direct incentive to the people ordering those things. And I think physicians are holistic beings. We are actually, that's what I do all day. You know, I'm not going to use the word holistic on my website or whatever, but certainly taking your entire head to toe into account when I'm coming up with a plan for how to assist and how to help and how to treat. And I think part of it is we don't have, we're understaffed, we're overworked. It's been two years into a pandemic. We have 15 minute visits with you. You know, we can't spend an hour and a half coming up with a diagnosis that fits all of the things that you put together, but we don't do that because it's also not the right thing to do, right? I mean, you can take a lot of facts and put them into like a narrative and give somebody an diagnosis like, oh, your adrenals are tired. Adrenals don't get tired, right? Adrenal fatigue is not a thing. And so, I mean, I think I could take all of the clues and tell you, you have, you know, basal body temperature dysregulation and ask you to check your thermometer and give you an actionable plan that involves supplements and but none of it's real. It's not going to help you because it's not, that's kind of made up. So, I mean, I think we're doing a lot of backend calculations and processing and thinking, and we have a lot of training and education to get to where we are. 
So we make it look easy, but it's not easy. And we're not being dismissive, you know, and I think it's very hard to convey in 15, 20 minutes. Oh, definitely. And one last question for you is how do you put your hormone expertise into practice in your own life, preventatively at least? And do you take any supplements? Because there are some things like for me, calcium might be in order, vitamin D might be in order. So I don't want to make sure the message isn't no supplement ever or, you know, how you think about that. So in terms of my hormones, I spend zero time maintaining hormone health, zero. And that is because I trust my body to do way better regulating itself than like anything I would intentionally do. Like this is what bodies do. If something is wrong, like I'd get my doctor once a year to send blood tests to make sure, you know, and that includes just routine kind of like, you know, cholesterol, electrolytes, but a TSH check and a vitamin D. The only supplement that I occasionally take when I remember to take it and don't tell my osteoporosis patients is vitamin D. And, you know, it's because I live in Chicago and I don't go outside enough and I wear sunscreen when I do go outside, right? I mean, I wear it every day in my makeup. So, I mean, I think vitamin D and D3 in a 1,000 units, like just like a low maintenance dose based on what my levels are, is it. I tell a lot of people to stop their vitamins. I find they cause nausea, constipation at a minimum. And at a maximum, you're getting a very excessive dose that greatly exceeds the recommended daily allowance of whatever mineral that is, you know. But in terms of what I do to stay healthy, I mean, I think I do my best. <laughs> I try and get a good night's sleep and I exercise as I can, sometimes on YouTube videos and sometimes um, outside, et cetera, right now. But I really don't stress out about maintaining hormone health because I'm already doing it. So you mentioned vitamin D for your bones, but do you feel like you get enough calcium from your diet and that you don't need to take any? Yeah. So I'm very sensitive to side effects of things. And so calcium causes a lot of like constipation, GI distress. And if you take too much of it, you can actually provoke a kidney stone because it gets kind of excreted at the kidneys a little bit too powerfully. So if you can, from a calcium standpoint, I encourage people to get it from their diet. There's tons of dairy and non-dairy options. If you can't get that, then a low dose of a calcium supplement in addition to diet is fine. But it's very rare that I'll say you need to do that. I mean, there are people who have hypoparathyroidism, which is a rare disorder that you don't have the hormone to regulate calcium balance. Like Those people need calcium. But I think it's few and far between where calcium is going to be the whole story for you, even if you have osteoporosis. I mean, dietary calcium is typically enough. Yeah, I was surprised. I looked at some studies at this recently and a bunch of, you know, randomized controls trials of adding a supplement on top of dietary intake didn't do much unless the person was radically deficient. Correct. So we check when I first meet you, we look and make sure your urine calcium is not in the radically deficient range, which is not common, but happens. Typically there's a clue on the blood test, you know, but I mean, in general, most people can get away with just dietary. If not, just don't exceed what is appropriate, right? So 500 milligrams a day. It's rare that I recommend that somebody without, you know, hypocalcemic disorder needs it. And then you want to make sure you have good vitamin D level, you know, 30 doesn't have to be higher, right? So there's a lab range that says go all the way up to the top, but there's no benefit to that really. You know, I think maybe we'll learn that maybe there is, but it's hard to, so far every vitamin D study has been relatively unremarkable, unexciting. <laughs> well, on that very practical note, we'll wrap up here and thank you again for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking You're with you. So welcome. This is my favorite thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Take care. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. 